0: I've been getting a lot of questions about monkeypox. I thought about writing something, but I realized it would be difficult for me since I don't know that much and I'd be starting from scratch. On May 30th, 2022, two infectious disease experts who I have a lot of respect for, Martha Fulford and Jen Grant, were kind enough to join me and explain the basics. All right, hi, I'm I'm speaking with Martha Fulford and Jen Grant today, who are two Um, wonderful people who agreed to come and chat with me about monkeypox, which I've been asked about over and over and don't know anything about, but these are people who actually know what they're talking about. So, uh, Martha, maybe you can tell us who you are.
1: Sure. I'm uh, an infectious disease specialist uh, based in Hamilton, Ontario. I um, Actually, I deal with both adult and pediatric patients. The last 10 years, mostly pediatric. And on the topic of monkeypox, I actually have a very strong interest in zoonoses, zoonoses being infections that go from um, animals to humans. And uh, in my past, actually co-authored a book called Companion Animal Zoonoses, which are the infections that we get from our our pets. So it is a topic near and dear to my heart. Wonderful. That's great. And and Jen?
2: So I'm Jen Grant. I'm infectious diseases and medical microbiology in Vancouver. I don't have the same degree of um, closeness to the topic, but I also have um, a fairly strong interest in uh, tropical travel medicine. So um, certainly I have seen the literature on monkeypox, although like most people in North America, I've never, at least not consciously seen a case.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, maybe the first question I'll throw out there and either one of you can feel this, is uh, you know, can you just give us a little primer on monkeypox? You know, what family is the virus, and what is it related to? And uh, you know, somebody want to handle that?
1: Sure. Do you want to go, Martha? Do you want me to go? Oh, I mean, I can start, Jen, and maybe Jen can jump in on the micro side. It's um, uh, it It's oh, no, so it's, a, it's a virus that predominantly lives in animals. We don't actually know what the host animal is. But probably a rodent. It's called monkeypox, actually, because it's an outbreak in, in monkeys uh, identified in the late 50s, I believe it was, uh, though the first human case was quite a bit after that that was identified. Um, it belongs to a family called orthopox virus. It's related to actually smallpox, which uh, we, we've eradicated um, from human transmission, uh, something called camelpox, cowpox. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. it. It's one of these families of viruses, and I guess they, one of the characteristics is that they do form this very, uh, or, or result in this very unique rash. It's quite quite distinctive. I'll let Jen sort of talk a little bit more about identifying the virus, or I, I, unless we're going to go into that in more detail later.
2: So why don't I talk about a little bit about um, uh, monkeypox in humans? So you, you, as you suggested, it was initially found in monkeys in 1958. Um, and the first human identified human case was in 1970 in a little boy in the democratic Republic of the Congo, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and since then there have been repeated, uh, introductions back into the human population predominantly in west africa although we have had a couple of um, outbreaks in north america uh, mostly related to contact with animals so there was one in 2003 and it was a result of um, pet prairie dogs being caged with um african pouched rats and the rats happened to be carrying the virus and so the um prairie dogs were infected, and then the humans that handled them after that were infected. Uh, But um, there was also a small outbreak in 2018. And then we have this outbreak, which seems to be sort of the largest um, non endemic uh, outbreak that we've seen um, in in quite a while. And um, what's sort of characteristic about the outbreaks is that they are, they tend to be or have historically tended to be quite self limited and um, fizzled out on their own um, because uh, transmission seems to be quite inefficient. Now we don't know how this used to behave in the old days of, of um, uh, smallpox. It may well have been introduced and reintroduced and would just have been put into that category along with smallpox and probably people wouldn't have noticed the difference.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, a question, you know, again I'll throw this out to both of you uh, and I've been asked numerous times but um, beyond this similarity that they both have pox in the name, my understanding is that this is not at all a relative of chicken pox. It's in a total family. Is that, I'm assuming. That is correct.
1: They, and- they are unrelated. The only similarity, I suppose, is that, as is true of a lot of viruses, uh, it, you, uh, often we have an initial, they are true of fever and, uh, Chickenpox uh, for primary infection. If somebody's never had it uh, and has no immunity, will people will get a disseminated rash? But the appearance of the rash is different, and the natural history is different. Uh, the thing is, if somebody presents with it, uh, a you know a, a sort of a rash that looks like blisters or or these little things all over the body, uh, it, 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 the initial appearance may not jump uh, tell you immediately which virus it is. And so we always have to be open-minded and sure that we, we think of all the, the uh, possible um, things that might be on a different, what we call differential diagnosis, obviously. But uh, no, they're not related. Okay. And, and
0: a question too, like in terms of, and you guys may be getting into this, but uh, I'll, I guess I'll throw it to Jen, is uh, chickenpox, you know, people think of it as a skin virus, but it's not really spread that way. It's a respiratory spread virus, largely a You know, as I understand it, monkeypox, I know it can be through respiratory droplets, but is that the primary mode of spread or is it skin to skin typically?
2: So based on sort of how we've seen this transmit, it really isn't following any sort of an airborne or even a droplet type spread. It really does seem to require fairly close contact. Um, now, we we have found, and certainly animal studies have found the virus in lung and upper respiratory tract tissues, and it probably depends on how you initially got the virus as to whether it disseminates generally and gets into lung and um, respiratory secretions or not, um, and, and that might actually explain some of how it's behaving now compared to how it behaves in endemic areas. Um, we can't be sure that it doesn't have an airborne route. So for now, until we have more information, we will, um, infection control recommendations are to treat it like it's airborne in hospital. Although that really is not how it's behaving. Um, It seems to be contact at worst droplet, but again, until we know more, um, the safest thing, especially in hospital to do is is to keep people on airborne precautions, which is what the current recommendations are.
0: Okay, so, so the typical spread that we would have been familiar with with previous outbreaks was more close contact skin to skin, is that correct?
2: So we, I think we, there's a whole bunch of things that we just don't know related to the endemic area because we suspect that a lot of the sort of reintroductions is um, from contact or consumption with bushmeat. Um, so these are uh, animals that are hunted from the wild who carry the virus endemically. Uh, And so we have a very hard time, especially in um, environments where healthcare is harder to access, understanding whether people got the virus because they all ate the same meat or handled the same animal, or if one person got it and transmitted to another, the information isn't very clear. And so we have a degree of unknown um, that I think, you know, unknowns always make people very uncomfortable. Um, Within North America, um, for the outbreaks we've seen, it seems to be following contact type transmission.
1: Yeah, the um, you know, looking at what we do know about the cases in West Africa, that um, as is often the case, particularly um, in, situ- in in environments where healthcare isn't uh, as strong as it could be. We don't know the denominator, but certainly there have been some serological studies uh, which would suggest that more people have been exposed and developed antibodies than have ever been identified as actually having had the infection. So again, this also raises a, a, a bit of a challenge in understanding exactly what the natural history is, but it does seem as well that along with people who can who, who have a really quite full-blown characteristic rash, that there are also cases that maybe you know, maybe not 100% asymptomatic, but only very mildly symptomatic and never came to medical attention. Historically, uh, as Jen mentioned, it was almost certainly mistaken for smallpox. And also historically, the smallpox vaccine would have conferred significant protection against monkeypox. So again, the what we're seeing may be an evolving story, because as uh less and less of the population has immunity uh, from, from the smallpox vaccine, because those of us who got it are getting older, uh, we may also uh, be learning a lot more and, the, and, the, and a lot of the natural history may be evolving
0: gotcha.
1: in terms of our understanding is what I mean by evolving.
0: Well, yeah, when did, when did, the, uh, when did the smallpox vaccine end? Do you remember the year in Canada? In Canada for-
2: 1972 <laughs> is the year in Canada. So if you were born in 71, you were vaccinated. And if you were born in 72, you were not.
1: Unless you traveled. Uh, So so it was still being given uh, for international travel. And the last case that was identified in nature was in 1977. And in some countries as late as 1980, before the vaccines were fully stopped. And and the World Health Organization declared it eradicated. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. So, so... uh... Getting back around, you know, like I guess we're all as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a full of rocking chairs about infectious disease right now, given the last two years of panic about COVID. So, um, who, what, what is the rapidity of spread being like uh, around the world, and who should be worried about this and who shouldn't? Who's at risk and who isn't?
1: So
2: we again don't really know. We've seen cases pop up in major urban centers. And so there's a degree of uncertainty as to has this been circulating for a long time and we're just picking up isolated cases here and there or is this a relatively new introduction? I think we're still waiting on the sequencing to see how far um, the virus has sort of traveled from its ancestral uh, strain. Um, in terms of who should be worried, we are, what we're seeing right now, and this can change, and Martha, I'll let you sort of pick up on it, is we, we, we seem to be seeing a lot of cases associated with um, men who have sex with men, um, who have been um, in large super spreader events. I'll pass it off to Martha.
1: Yeah, that's what we're seeing. I mean, it's possible um, that it's actually been circulating for uh, longer than anybody would have thought. And again, we don't know, so this is speculation on my part. But with COVID, of course, we had a lot of shutdown of um, our sexually transmitted um, infection. Our clinics, our sexual health clinics, were shut down. A lot of in-person visits have been shut down. Uh, there was, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I don't say perhaps. I mean, for sure, we, we haven't seen. Ideal healthcare in certain circumstances, and some of the reports are essentially atypical presentation of monkeypox with just oral lesions or just genital lesions, and it could have been completely misidentified, because again, it, it's fairly nonspecific. And so, if you see somebody with a sort of, you know, vesicular rash, you might think it's herpes simplex, you might think it's syphilis, you might think it's something else, and if it's a self-limited thing that came and went maybe a person who even sought, sought medical attention. So uh, we're, we're learning fast, obviously, but it's possible that there was some degree of transmission going on for a while. And what's happening now is we're picking it up because everybody's paying attention.
0: Gotcha. So it's possible that folks like myself in primary healthcare may have, even if we did see it, if these if people, if people actually presented, we may have called it something else It went away I'm not even going to
1: say primary health care. I mean, I'm an infectious disease physician. If somebody showed up with a, you know, non-specific lesion in their mouth and I swabbed it and it was HSV negative, I'm not sure I would have necessarily, you know, without some sort of thinking of it. Uh, if it's an atypical presentation, I, I wouldn't have sent it off for monkeypox. I mean, now I would obviously, but without that advisory and awareness that maybe we're seeing uh, more cases circulating and that we're seeing some, Un, so not characteristic, not what we thought were characteristic presentations, uh, it, it may have been missed. And so I think as, as Jen is saying, we don't 100% know, but what, I, what we are seeing though, and I think that, again, we're learning, but it does still seem to be following predominantly very close contact transmission. Uh, in that it, it does seem to be within sort of cohorts where, where one can see that there was very close contact.
0: And and so you say you know it self you use the word self limited obviously any disease can be severe in a certain percentage of cases what how how worried should somebody be if they are you know, diagnosed with monkeypox is this fatal in a small percentage of cases is it is it treatable
1: so question go go you go. I was going to say, so
2: I'll deal with the disease severity if you want to go with uh, treatment, um, Martha. So
1: um,
2: in its natural environment in endemic areas, um, there's two major strains. There's the Congo strain, so-called. So so that's sort of more central Eastern Africa and there's the West African strain. And there seems to be a difference in terms of mortality in those strains. In um, sort of that whole endemic area, mortality for the Congo strain is around 10%. Uh, with um, the West African strain being slightly less um, dangerous at 3%. But you have to remember that there's some fundamental differences in the populations. First of all, um, people's general health may be um, not as strong. Um, and also, the, there, there's probably a strong correlation um, with how you get inoculated. So what we're seeing right now is skin to skin contact. And in fact, historically, um, before there was a smallpox vaccine, the means of getting yourself immune to smallpox was variolation where you would take a blister, you'd cut your skin a little bit, put the blister in so that you were able to mount an immune response before you got a systemic virus. So that is likely to sort of transmit less severe disease. Um, whereas in endemic areas, um, especially if you ingest uh, bush meat that's undercooked, um, there's a chance of getting that directly inoculated into uh, your mucous membrane, which which puts you at much higher risk for more severe disease. So, so there's 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 that difference, and then you have to remember that health systems are much stronger in uh, North America, and. People have much better access to treatment of the complications like pneumonia or skin and soft tissue infection, and and so some of the mortality might be prevented just by good medical care.
0: Gotcha. So we do, we would expect the mortality numbers to be typically quite low in the, in the way yeah. we see it expressed here in North America. Yeah.
1: In the in the two thousand and three outbreak that was associated with the prairie dogs, there were no deaths in in the United States from the monkeypox.
0: And and out of how many cases and. Um,
1: 78, I believe. Okay. 78, 78, yeah.
2: And what, what kind of numbers? And,
1: you... and maybe, and actually maybe slightly more because they actually uh, went and looked at some of the people, uh, older people who had actually been vaccinated against smallpox and found that they had antibodies to monkeypox, but had never had evidence of disease. So the outbreak may have been slightly um, greater than than the actual identified cases, but it was, it was, as Jen says 78, I think were, were uh, formally identified at the time okay. of the outbreak.
0: And and how many, uh, we'll come back to treatment, but do you guys have a sense of how many cases we've seen uh, in North America at this point? How does it compare to 2003 and and have we had any mortality? I think the answer is no to that.
1: No, there have been no deaths um, at this point from this outbreak. Uh, I think we've had two confirmed in Canada, or is it more now, Jen?
2: I, I believe there's only two. The numbers keep changing, so it's sort of hard to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, we're around somewhere between 150 and 200, sort of in North America and Western Europe. But I'd actually have to look it up online. Um, I can do that yeah, while we chat.
1: Yeah, it's it's in the rate of, of all the countries i have reported. Um, the the last time I looked, it was still less than it was still less than 200, and that's. Um, all of Europe and North America that are reporting right now.
0: I see, so yeah, no, no, that's fine. I just wanted to get a sense of the size of this. uh, And so it's probably pretty comparable to 2003, really, um, from from the numbers you're mentioning that, uh, you know, maybe probably bigger by the time it all said and done, but.
1: What's different is that we're seeing cases simultaneously in all these different countries uh, and the, um, which is why, Either every, you know, there was sort of some link to a superspreader event, or it has actually been circulating undetected for a little bit longer than anybody realized. Okay,
0: I got you. Um, great.
2: Um, so I did manage to Google it, and um, we're at 219 now per um, the uh, ECDC.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And, and so I kind of interrupted the flow there, Martha, but you, you were going to talk a little bit about treatment. Um, so if somebody has monkeypox, is there, are there specific treatments or the monoclonal antibodies, anything else that we have?
1: The main uh, treatment it remains what we call supportive therapy. I mean, really it's um, you know, sort of, if somebody has a fever, it's um, good hydration, it's treatment of any secondary bacterial infection, either because of the bacterial pneumonia or, or as far as dementia, skin and soft tissue, it seems to be quite common if you read the descriptions. Um, There is no uh, specific antiviral where we can say with confidence uh, it works against monkeypox. There is an antiviral that was approved in the United States a few years ago um, that uh, was approved for smallpox uh, called, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, Tukoviromat. Uh, I don't even think it's available in Canada, and in the US, it's only available by um, um, through the CDC. Um, it was given to healthy humans to see if they tolerated. It. it seemed to be tolerated, but obviously, it was never tested against smallpox because we don't have circulating smallpox. And there were maybe six or seven people with monkeypox where um, who were given it, and I. So the numbers are very low. Uh, there is another antiviral called didofavir, uh, which may have some activity, but again, it, it's it's not that we have very much experience. Didofavir is quite toxic; it can cause significant kidney damage. There's an uh, an analog that, um, again, you know, maybe it works called uh, it's a brind but again. We don't have a lot of experience uh, because there's really not been any huge monkey out- uh, monkeypox outbreak where people have used these drugs. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of who would get an antiviral, I think if you had a very high risk individual, and by high risk, somebody who's very immunocompromised, and and by that we we we're talking, you know, advanced HIV. So so people whose CD4 counts are very low, uh, transplant patients, recent stem cell transplant patients, or if not recent, uh, if if they still have um, graft-versus-host disease. Um, So very immunosuppressed uh, patients, and and if they were very sick, you would try. Um, I don't think we have any antibodies. I mean, there's some in the US for smallpox, but I'm not aware of any um, antibody treatment that would be easily available. I suppose all these people that have had it and recovered, we could start to to try to collect it. Uh, In terms of prevention, um, again, with smallpox, we used to do this uh, thing called ring vaccination, where if you identify the case of smallpox, and because smallpox was really only infectious once the person had the, the rash, you would identify all the contacts and, and, and basically vaccinate the sort of the ring around that person, so to speak, so all the possible contacts. So you didn't have to try to vaccinate everybody in the community, you would identify that the, those close contacts and do what was called ring vaccination, try to sort of stop the the spread that way. This is actually being uh, done in the UK at the moment, or at least they're thinking of it. The vaccines again, are the ones that were essentially developed for um, smallpox. So uh, one of the um, modified sort of uh, non-replicating virus uh, vaccines that was approved in 2018, uh, it supposedly has activity against monkeypox as well. But again, a lot of this is is uh, is on animal studies uh, on on specifically monkeys. It's not on human trials.
0: Um, so, so this and, and maybe maybe I'll toss this over to Jen. This idea of, of ring vaccination. So it's a little different than say you know COVID vaccinations. Obviously we couldn't we can't really wait till somebody gets COVID and then vaccinate other people in their household. Um, is, is the difference is it does it come from the the kind of the uh, a slower onset of infection and symptoms in monkeypox? Is it something particular to the virus? Is it, why can we consider ring vaccination in this and not other diseases?
2: So there's a couple of things, and we do actually do ring vaccination in other diseases. So we, we do do ring vaccination. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Martha, because I haven't had to do it in so long, but I, I believe we do it for measles. Um, and um, we certainly it's gonna be effective in, um, diseases with a longer incubation period um, where you can mount enough of an immune response that by the time you're you're likely to get disease, even if it doesn't completely stop it, it will mute it. So um, we we have that opportunity with this virus because it's got a little bit of a longer incubation period um, compared to, say, respiratory viruses where your incubation period is two or three days, obviously. It takes somewhere between seven and 14 days to mount an immune response. So, um, you know, you're not going to it's not going to be very useful um, if something's got an incubation period of two to three days. I think the other difference um, and none of us have that much experience working. Well, none of us my age have much experience working with a smallpox vaccine, Um, but it, it was not a completely benign vaccine. I mean, it was much better than getting smallpox. Um, but it still had quite a lot of side effects. And so, you know, when we're dealing with something that has 219 cases in a population of 8 billion, um, a mass vaccination campaign, um, you know, you, you probably don't want to go there because you're going to have a lot of side effects for people who were never going to um, have, didn't have the risk of disease. So just really trying to identify those people at very high risk um, is probably a value. Um, and again, uh, people who have been previously vox- vaccinated for smallpox, it's a question whether, you know, having an additional dose is a benefit or not. And I, I haven't seen data on that, and I don't think anyone's going to have data on that.
1: No, though so the studies have suggested that the, um, even for a smallpox vaccine does confer at least a degree of protection. This is, this is seen both um, in the studies in West Africa, as well as was noted in the uh, 2003 outbreak in the U.S., but it, there is a lack of really sort of good data on um, what we would do, but, but I would agree there's absolutely no evidence uh, that a mass vaccination program is at all warranted. And I would be very cautious with these vaccines before I did that. Um, the, the sort of the modified one that got approved is, is supposed to be non-replicating, but, but one of the, um, the other vaccines you would never, for example, have given them to an immunocompromised patient. Uh, because they were live replicating and and uh, that would have been I, I think pretty much an absolute contraindication. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of promised myself I wouldn't drift into COVID talk with you folks but uh, it's hard, hard not to do here when we're talking about the inadvisability of a mass vaccination program for people at low risk. Do you think there's somewhat, uh, there's, do you think there's any analogy in talking about maybe you know this push to vaccinate even under five-year-old kids for COVID, and the, you know some, I, I, I gather some doctors are already getting asked by patients to vaccinate against monkeypox with, uh, you know, it would be the smallpox vaccine. Do you think, do you think there's an analogy there? Yeah. How-
1: you know, it's not wrong, um, and it's pretty standard for us to have different uh, vaccine recommendations depending on, on what disease we're looking at and depending on who's at risk. And so, uh, you know, saying that somebody who's at very high risk for poor outcome or at high risk of getting, you, you know, a, a, an infection benefits from from being vaccinated where there are other situations where, you um, we, we would probably say that there's no role for it. And I mean, good examples is the shingles vaccine is recommended for sort of 50 plus or people who are very immunocompromised because that's really who who we see are at risk. Uh, there are other vaccines where we really recommend it for younger people because they're at higher risk. Uh, and so having um, vaccination recommendations tailored, Uh, to the characteristic of the vaccine and looking at who in the population is at risk and who might most benefit is pretty standard. You know, the COVID vaccines have always become highly political uh, and very emotional for a lot of people. Uh, And so, you know, some of the decisions were made a year or a year and a half ago. uh, It's not wrong to revisit them. And we've learned a lot uh, and, you know, it's pretty obvious. I think we're all well aware by now that the vaccines um, did a very good job of preventing severe disease and those were at high risk. But I think it would be also fair to say that we're all pretty disappointed that uh, they didn't stop transmission uh, and that's clear. And with Omicron, they definitely didn't. And also we've learned now uh, with some pretty compelling studies that people who have had COVID and recovered do develop really robust and, and, a good immune response. And so recommendations from, you know, when we first started to, to vaccinate and now it, it's perfectly reasonable to take a step back and say, okay, should we take a good look and see who, who would benefit, who needs it? Uh, and certainly there are, you know, different approaches in different countries, uh, which the fact that, you know, Canada uh, does one thing, parts of the US doesn't do other things. Europe is doing something else. Tell, I mean, it pretty much tells us that that it's not a settled science. You know, certainly in the monkeypox, we have very small numbers, if you think of the worldwide numbers. And at this point, uh, you know, we'd have to have some, a huge uh, change in what we're seeing epidemiologically before anybody would recommend suddenly mass vaccination, assuming it were even available, of course, with, with essentially an untested vaccine.
0: Jen, do you want do you want to add
2: anything to that, or That's pretty pretty full full I, I think Martha nailed it. Um, the um, I, again, the the smallpox vaccines we don't remember um, historically, but th- they did have quite a few side effects. In fact, if you go back to variolation, which was the precursor to to vaccination, it actually had a four percent mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, the virus itself is quite reactogenic mm-hmm. um, and, and so we have to be very careful about um, just making sure we balance risk benefit especially when what we're seeing is relatively benign disease in almost all people. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Okay um, I, th- I think you guys have done a great job you kind of uh, anticipated a number of questions and answered them without me asking them. Is there anything else you think uh, people should know about monkeypox that haven't asked about it?
1: I would I was going to say is people should not panic. Um, You know, like like if, if, you know, apparently some of my colleagues are already saying they have patients coming in asking if they can be vaccinated. No, it's very premature. Um, It's hard to ignore the media, but this is a story that should not be sensationalized and we should not overreact and we should, in fact, allow proper epidemiologic investigation to be done. Uh, And I hope that we're able to do this without sort of, you know, panic and pandemonium uh, because at this point there's nothing to suggest that that's warranted. And there's nothing that we're seeing at this point that would in any way justify uh, some sort of mass panic of any sort. Yeah, Sorry, I, Jen, I, I cut you off. Th- that's okay. Actually, I was going to say that, but I, I think the
2: other point that we really, really need to make is about um, sexual health and about um, seeking care and not being embarrassed. Um, everybody has sex. That's how we're all here. And, um, you know, most of most of the transmission, uh, the diseases that are transmitted um, during sexual activity are easily treatable. And you know, you need to show your doctor because they can actually help you with it. And it's also a reminder for all of our colleagues um, to, you know, a good physical exam involves the genitals and a lot of these, um, a lot of people have asymptomatic um, disease. And so recognizing it was really important so that we can prevent this from from spreading further in the community. Um, And I guess, lastly, um, for our our citizens who are uh, in the gay community, Um, you know you guys have have been through a lot with HIV and now with this and I just it's it's one uh, message of support Um, we love you we love having you with us Um, and just to to try and make sure that you um, do a good check um, and make sure that you don't have any symptoms.
0: Good so so what I'm hearing is uh, the communities at risk should be really aware and get in touch with their doctor and the big take home for message for me is don't mix my prairie dogs with the pouch rats, which I was about to go out and do. So uh, thanks for the thanks for heading that one off at the past. Appreciate it. All right. Anyway, thank you, guys. I really appreciate you spending the time. And uh, like I say, you, you took me from knowing uh, essentially nothing about monkeypox to at least at least the basics. So I really appreciate your time.